0: Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Bajin. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. Margot, I want you to picture this. You're in fifth or sixth grade. You need to go back to school shopping and you need some folders. You need some pencils. You need maybe some binders, some notebooks. But you know, you've got a personality. You want the people to know what you're all about.
1: Yes, that's correct. I am the friend with quote-unquote personality. Thank Good you personality. so much for noticing. <laughs> what
0: what theme are you going for this school year, Margot? Is it a dolphin and unicorn acid trip or babies dressed as flowers and animals?
1: Okay. Um, so I would say from grades like three through five, it was definitely a dolphin on acid. And then in sixth grade, I really did think that like babies put in like a pumpkin patch or whatever was like the height of sophistication and what I wanted to project as my middle school self. And so I definitely remember like switching to Ann Gettys in sixth grade. And like I had, I went all out, I had like the the calendar that was like every day was like a different kind of baby. <laughs> Talking about it makes you feel crazy. You're like people used to, these like these babies dressed as like a bush of lavender. And you're like, why are we doing
0: this? It it was such a part of our culture. Like I too had all of these things. And what's interesting is like there were it wasn't just Ann Gettys. There were like other kind of like B grade Ann Gettys who did like oh yeah. Photos of children, like in old timey clothes, like yes. my grandma gave, like <laughs> after my grandma passed away. It was sad, but it'll be funny in a second. She, someone found an old notebook of hers where she started writing down some of the wines she liked that she wanted. And my, my dad was like, this is for you. And it's like this old timey picture of a girl clearly taken in the nineties, but she's wearing like, I don't know, she's supposed to look like an orphan at the turn of the century. And oh, inside God. it's just like the beginning of my, my, my grandma's recommendations for wine. <laughs>
1: Yeah, my grandma had similar cards as well. Where like for whatever reason, these children were shot with like Vaseline on the oh lens, and this like sepia tone that led you to believe that the children perished shortly thereafter. Like you had to be wary of the Ann Getty's knockoff because Ann Getty's like made you feel like you know I don't know whimsical I guess yes. like was it whimsy like is it cottage like who's to say I mean it's
0: it's it's an intersection where Laura Ashley kind of drops <laughs> off. Along with, you know, the 90s in in all its, you know, weirdness. Uh, Yes. And then a tinge of like, you know, we really loved sunflowers for a while for some reason as a That Teletubby influence. I mean, I would also
1: say... Cabbage Patch dolls, because we talked about yes. Cabbage Patch dolls in that previous Toys episode, and there was, like, a lore around them about how they grew in a literal Cabbage Patch, and I really feel like, unfortunately, that, like, or fortunately, or whatever, paved the way of, like, the normalization of Ann
0: Gettys and babies and, like, you know, Cabbage Patches and such. Oh, for sure. I mean, it was just, it, it was prevalent everywhere, and it was very interesting. Like, we just had so much of this, like, this is art, art is a baby is it? as a pea in the pod like no i mean that's what we were thinking at the time like this is but art. were we
1: i don't really know i don't
0: know i don't know but it
1: I wouldn't classify her as an artist, just like I found it to be very interesting in all of this Lisa Frank research that they people call her like an artist. And I know that she is, but it's hard not to, unfortunately, through like, you know, 2020 brain, see her as like a brand and not necessarily an artist. And so when you say Ann Gettys, also because Ann Gettys is even more reclusive than Lisa Frank is, I don't really. I don't really see her as an artist, as a person. I see her as like a brand and like this lady who found an angle to sell like mass merchandise.
0: I guess that's there's a bit of that for sure. Um, if you can't tell already, we're going to be talking about two women whose designs were predominantly featured on our folders and notebooks at one point in our lives, Lisa Frank and Anne Getty's. Uh, before we get into it, Margot, um, it sounds like we both had Lisa Frank and Anne Getty's photographs heavily featured on our school supplies. Are there any of each brand that you in particular remember um, vividly?
1: I remember I had a Lisa Frank folder, maybe in third or fourth grade, and I believe it had the dolphin on it. And I was like, absolutely obsessed. I mean, I think, you know, I had already had a lot of the like, because I think there's like something about Lisa Frank that had a, um, a bit of like a trading culture associated with it. And I was very familiar with that from like Hello Kitty stuff. Yeah, And I really loved cute stationery I collected a ton of it and like coveted it there were uh, this has nothing to do with either of them Uh, it just relates to stationery but I had these like little piglet sticky notes that were like super super cute that I got in like Chinatown or something and I wouldn't trade them at all because and I wouldn't use them either but they were like on my desk on display for like years and same thing with like Lisa Frank stickers. I like hung on to so many of them. I would use them very judiciously and like mm-hmm. planned in a very specific way. And I would only trade for ones I didn't have. I didn't care to have doubles. Like I really did kind of see it as like a collector's item. Like, you oh, know, for sure. some people do baseball cards. I did like Lisa Frank and Hello Kitty. And then, yeah, and Gettys kind of came along. And I think it was just sort of like the perfect time. And it just was like just another thing to to collect another thing to trade another like cute piece of stationery since i was like already so um into amassing like a large volume of unused stationery which is I was such window. an interesting
0: trend yeah i mean like there was just i couldn't have enough notebooks i couldn't mm-hmm. have enough like notepads pencils pens erasers, stickers, what have you. Like I had sticker books. I had so much stuff. And then between, because I had a sister, the two of us, you know, if she got something, she'd split some of it with me and vice versa. So like between the two of us, we had like amassed quite a collection. And I don't know why I was obsessed with just all the stationery, but I had so much, so much of which just like went unused over the years. I never became a big letter writer. Like I really admire people. (laughs) Who write letters, you write note cards, like, I think it's very sweet. But unless there's an occasion for me, it's, it's it ain't gonna happen. Like, it's just right. not for me.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it's like you would start out, at least for me, it would start out in earnest with like summer camp friends, right? Oh, but you totally sure. fall the fuck off by like November. Uh-huh. And then, you know, you, I don't know about you, but like slowly but surely, like I'd whittle down my pile and whittle it down. And then eventually you're just left with like this small pile. But you're like, how did this set of whatever you end up with like survive?
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was just for me. uh, The other thing that came up with like staying in touch with camp friends was just like AIM. So mm-hmm. like you had, you had instant messenger and then you also had like, because my sister and I went to Canadian camp one year, we had MSN. Because, oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. To stay in touch with international friends. Yeah. Cause no, no one cousins, outside of, of the U S yeah. And your cousins, your French cousins. Yeah. So no one outside the U S used AIM. So, uh, yeah, I had AIM and I had MSN. And so by that point, you know, like I'm not writing letters to anybody. Right. Uh, so, but it was all a very nice, um, all nice intentions. And I, I just, it's interesting to me because I'd love to know, you know, do girls still collect these things nowadays in a digital world, if you will? Like are stickers still a thing? Are, you know, collecting stationary? I doubt it, but like, maybe it still is. I don't know.
1: I don't really, I don't, if, if it is, it's just sort of like everything else where it is it's siloed right like i'm sure there's like a cult following for some etsy shop just like i i mean you know a habit that's kind of carried over from childhood into adulthood is like i do a fucking bullet journal and so i get a lot of really cute stickers from this one etsy app or one etsy store and they just have like the kind of bullet the bullet journal stickers that i like in particular and i can't imagine that there isn't like some sort of gen z version of that somewhere but there isn't like one monolith or like a couple of places where you could go to get this stuff anyway. It's like, if you just sort of like casually drop by a CVS, like the stationary selection is fucking trash and you know, blicks are like disappearing and Michael's have like everything and like nothing at at the same time, they very it's,
0: sad places.
1: I would say maybe Target is the only one keeping the spirit yeah. of stationery alive with like their little 99 cent columns that like entice you at the end. So I would say like I've gotten some cute stuff from there to just sort of, you know, impulse buy, but I would say that's pretty much it. You, I think you have to be, th- there isn't just one singular source like Elisa Franker and Ann Gettys that like everybody's talking about, right?
0: For sure, for sure. And it is interesting, like, you know, going into this like research of stationary and school supplies, since this is a big one, like for me, that was a big kind of gateway drug. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just like, it is something that nowadays, like kids still have this stuff, but a lot of stuff is done on a computer. So there's just like, you have personality, but you have your personality shown in different ways. Like you still have school supplies, but it's just not like the way it used to be. Oh Um, yeah. I
1: mean, when I taught, uh, 826 last month, they were all obsessed with my pop socket oh, on the right. back of my phone, at which That's I was just like, should. I almost like, why do you care about this pop socket? But then it, it kind of dawned on me later. I'm like, oh, they're probably thinking, you know, since they're in this age range, when I'm sure they're going to be getting a phone in the next couple of years, uh, if they're anything like kids were when I was growing up, you're planning it out already, like how you want yeah. it to look and how you're going to stylize it. So you're taking cues from other people that currently have it. So yeah, I would say the the thing that I've noticed in my uh, short amount of time of interacting with tweens is pop sockets are where it's at.
0: Yeah, I mean it makes and it makes perfect sense. Um, before we kind of get into it today, I have a little history of school supplies, which mm. I was surprised there were multiple articles, but I got some information, inclo- including an article from the Smithsonian, so you know it's legit. Um, basically, it's um, it's interesting because like. Personality when it comes to school supplies is not a thing until like the 1950s and 60s, which makes a lot of sense because that's like, you know, the baby boomer era, consumerism, all that jazz. Um, And it's interesting to see how we've evolved as a culture. So, you know, up until the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s, students were really using mostly slate boards. Like paper was still very expensive. So Hmm. they kept, composition books were really just for exams you'd have like one for the entire year you didn't have one for each subject you basically used your slate pencils quill pens which eventually became wooden dip pens with replaceable metal nibs so like think kind of a prototype fountain pen if you will and then back then you really didn't have variety so everything was pretty standard you couldn't showcase your personality with your school supplies and in fact at the time a lot of school supplies companies, so think early pencils notebooks would have you pencil boxes um kind of the prototype to a pencil case, had very like American motifs as an effort to Americanize the wave of immigrant children coming into the u s and attending schools and this was in conjunction with having the flag displayed in classrooms, patriotic songs, history classes, etc and then after that, uh you didn't really have um backpacks in like I was surprised about this one. Many kids didn't even have backpacks until the 1970s when Jansport hmm. created a light version of their nylon backpack. And students at the University of Washington started using backpacks to carry their books. So kids before used leather straps or belts. And there were some book bags on the market, but they were made of denim or like materials where things were just not super strong and not didn't have a whole lot of personality. Um, and so really, it didn't take off until the 1970s and a lot of what we know around having options like i mentioned earlier with school supplies dates to the 1950s and the influx of baby boomers. And a great example of this is in lunch boxes. So in the 1800s and early 1900s you had a lunch pail and then later there were lunch boxes on the market but they looked like little mini picnic baskets. And then enter the 1950s when the thermos company starts producing metal lunch boxes um, which you know everyone sees all the time those really great retro lunch boxes and during the 19, from 1950 to 1970, 120 million lunchboxes were sold during their heyday. And you could get like whatever character you wanted on lunchbox. So, you, you know, like Josie and the Pussycats or Star Trek or what have you. Um, and there is one major invention, though, that changes the game for kids when it comes to school supplies in 1978 and really has its heyday in the 80s and 90s. E. Brian Crutchfield will invent the Trapper Keeper for Mead. Very much a school supplies them. Um, I mean, I don't know how many five-star notebooks I went through back in the day. They are now a part of the ACCO or ACO company. I'm not sure you pronounce that. But back then, the Trapper Keeper was like a revolution. Brightly colored three-ring binders held folders called trappers that held vertical folders instead of horizontal ones so your papers wouldn't fly out. And they closed with a Velcro or button snap. And from the start, they were a huge success. For several years after their nationwide release, Mead sold over $100 million of the folders and notebooks in a year. And to date, more than 75 million Trapper Keepers have flown off store shelves. And this is like a, from an article about uh, seven years ago. So there may have been more since. It's like, according to my research, there may have been a recent revival of the Trapper Keeper um, hmm. with like old 80s looking designs, which is always great. Um, But this was like the heyday of, you know, brightly colored school supplies. And I think this really lends itself nicely into a transition in talking about Lisa Frank. Oh, boy, does it.
1: Well, so I'm splitting up Lisa Frank into three parts. Lisa Frank, the business, or at least the business that she would like us all to perceive that she has. Lisa Frank, the person, because... Uh, being in the business for as long as she has she is an enigmatic figure and so and and for good reason in a lot of ways and then we are also going to go into I mean for a lack of a better term the expose that came out in 2013 Um, I just pulled some choice quotes to kind of illustrate how things were going in the behind the scenes area of the Lisa Frank operation to sort of um illustrate how all of a sudden she went from being absolutely everywhere to extremely hard to find i'm going to take a sip of water you can obviously cut this out and then i'm going to start no worries lisa frank inc was formed in 1979 under lisa frank and it quickly became known for its colorful school supplies and stickers Frank was inspired by herself, basically. Between her sophomore and junior years of college, she created a plastic jewelry line called Sticky Fingers. Sticky Fingers was her calling card because it used colorful fruit and novelty character pendants like Betty Boop, a bunch of other uh, characters that she was able to buy the license to. And you could buy her Sticky Fingers jewelry from Neiman Marcus and Bloomingdale's in the early 70s. The success of the jewelry line then led her to create a line of stickers and then later buttons, and those stickers launched her brand and then led Lisa Frank to create Lisa Frank Inc in 1979 when she was only 24 years old. That same year she received her first $1 million order from Spencer's Gifts. The company only produced stickers at first featuring Frank's original characters and designs. All of her this process is crazy. All of her designs through 1989 were colored with an airbrush technique. The process, yes, the process would take anywhere between nine and thirty-six hours to complete. In a 1983 interview, Frank said the company's sticker process began with a concept, then the concept would move to a pencil sketch, which would then be translated into an 18 by 24 painting before qualifying for approval for an individual sticker.
0: How much speed? How much speed and cocaine at this office?
1: An individual sticker on average took minimum three months to approve. The oh fact that God. she was successful at all bonkers. I mean, just because of like the turnaround time, like, how do you meet supply and demand if you are taking three months to approve one sticker design? That's not in mean, this economy. No, not right now. No, ma'am. Lisa Frank Inc., though, despite all of that, took off in 1987 when the company became, became, blah, blah, blah. Despite all of that, Lisa Frank Inc. took off in 1987 when the company began producing school supplies featuring their original designs. These designs featured the quote-unquote classic Lisa Frank characters like the panda, the painter, and then later on the dolphin and the tiger and all of the cats, which the cats are inspired by her because they're little fancy cats, even though she hates cats, which I'm just like, this woman contains multitudes. Unhinged. She's just like, I. I she's just a scary. Sk- Skinny, wild, white lady living in Arizona. I just feel like right. I know. I, like, sh- if she didn't have this, she'd be one of those people that like makes jewelry out of turquoise at like the farmers market. You know what I mean? You know that woman? Oh, totally. She's, like, sp- she's not religious. She's spiritual. You know, and like she has ayahuasca for you.
0: I mean, I did just watch something recently where someone called Arizona the Florida of the West, and I was like, oh yes, that makes oh, sense. One hundred
1: percent easily. I've known <laughs> plenty of Floridians who have decamped to Arizona, and vice versa hmm There's a pipeline there. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa Frank's original commercial slogan was, You Gotta Have It! which debuted in the late 1980s and would later feature Mila Kunitz in a commercial. There was also an air of collectability, which we had touched on earlier. Very, like, gotta catch them all kind of thing. Like, the commercials kind of, like, implied the... Limited but unlimited opportunities with Lisa Frank because it's so colorful and there are stickers, but sometimes we get new stickers, but you want to get all of them, but there's no way that you could possibly do it. Her line of products included folders, pencil cases, erasers, trapper keepers, and notebooks. They were so popular, the company grossed over $60 million in a year during sales at its peak in the 1990s. The company stopped using the time-consuming hand-painted airbrushing technique and finally switched over to computer software. In this little Urban Outfitters of All Places mini-doc that they did on her when she also refused to show her face on camera, there is an archive that we see where they keep all of the hand-drawn stuff from the 80s, and it is in
0: pristine condition. Just amazing. I I remember watching that and just being in awe. Like, it was like... You know, you you, like just an untouched, like you stepped back into 1986.
1: You also feel very high watching it because you watch it and there's it also feels like you're it feels like a drug trip. Plus, it's directed by Christopher Guest. Like there was something about like a mascot, a Lisa Frankie mascot standing outside this rainbow colored (laughs) abandoned business park waving at you that you're like. Wait, am I high? And then you go inside and there are these giant statues of all of her different characters all over the place. And the place is fucking abandoned. Like, it looks like you could shoot the walking dead in here. It is, there is not a soul walking around and there isn't any soul to this place. And everything is so oppressively bright. And then you keep doing these cuts to these people outside in this just like enormous, vacant business park lot. Like, it is just so crazy to me. It looked like if... It looked like all of Redwood City, if Redwood City only had one building in the entirety of it. You know what I mean? It just <laughs> Yeah. It's so big and we'll get into the that office space, but it is just such a strange. None of it like none of it makes any sense together. Like all of the pieces put together, you're like, "What?" Like even at your peak, this this office space, this office space makes no sense. No. Anyway, by September of 2005, Lisa Frank filed for divorce from her husband. Since 1994, James A. Green, her husband at the time, was the president and CEO of Lisa Frank Inc. They were the company's only stockholders, and in that same month, she also sued to remove Green from the company, and he resigned finally the following month. Frank eventually won a court settlement that year, stating Green must sell his shares in the stock to her at a discount, according to a 1995 buy-sell agreement. This resulted in Frank finally resuming her position as CEO of the company. During the court trial, they found out that Lisa Frank Inc. grossed over $1 billion in sales since 1979. In the subsequent years, the brand moved away from stationery, though, and into apps while it waged endless court battles, which we will get into later. And like everyone else in the mid-aughts, she created a couple Lisa Frank a- apps. So we had one that was Lisa Frank, Lisa Frank clip art, so you could add it to your pictures, sort of like a you know old-school filter. And then the other one was a Lisa Frank coloring book app. Because I also, oh my God, I mean, we didn't even get into like the coloring book, at least with Lisa Frank. And I don't yeah. know if Ann Gettys ever had a coloring book, but no. I had a mountain of Lisa Frank coloring books. Oh, for sure. I did too. Unfortunately, and it's kind of hard to say exactly when, just because there's a lot of, you know, secrecy and smoke and mirrors with Lisa Frank. Um It's hard to tell exactly when, but all of Lisa Frank's stores eventually shuttered around the time she pivoted to app making and it became increasingly hard to find any Lisa Frank merch unless you owned it personally from the 90s until 2012 when Urban Outfitters, the purveyors of nostalgia picking up the mantle from Hot Topic, began selling Lisa Frank vintage merchandise such as stickers and trapper keepers on the Urban Outfitters website. Lisa Frank said that, They save about 10 copies for every product they have ever made, and Urban Outfitters sells many of the reproductions of her vintage products. Urban Outfitters then created a small resurgence for Lisa Frank in good and bad ways, which again, more on that in a second, I promise. Lisa Frank at one point opened up a Tucson, Arizona headquarters that was 320,000 square feet. At the time, though, when it opened, they were still earning about $2.3 million in annual revenue. But by 2013, the number of employees at this enormous building in Tucson uh, that was right next to the airport. That's how fucking big it is. Dwindled from its peak of about 500 employees to six. And yet. What? I know. Yeah. We'll get into that. Because we're going to go into the under the rainbow gulag, which it kind of explains how all this turnover happens. And she must just own that building outright or else there's absolutely no way she'd be able to keep up that payment. I agree. Anyway. And yet a second wind sailed under Lisa Frank's wings in 2021 when her 21-year-old son, Forrest Green, he's named after a character no. that she draws a little tiger, took no. over as the director of business development. He started by managing the company's Instagram account during the pandemic as while he was still a student at UCLA and now was trying to position it as a lifestyle brand. Apparently, it gained over 700,000 followers, and he's made several strategic partnerships with other brands since then. In November of 2020, Lisa Frank partnered with Morphe to launch, which is a makeup brand, to launch Morphe and Lisa Frank and eyeshadow palette with a bunch of Lisa Frank characters in December of 2021. This sounds absolutely disgusting, by the way. I've got to preface this. Pillsbury and Lisa Frank produced limited edition Lisa Frank unicorn-shaped sugar cookie dough featuring the classic unicorn, Marky. <laughs> And most recently, she has a sold out line with Crocs. The company no longer produces its own products, though. At least as of 2018, it started licensing out its name to smaller companies to do this production and then doing these strategic partnerships through her son. So that's Lisa Frank the business as sort of like a giant overview. Now, Lisa Frank the person. She was born April 21st, 1955 in Michigan. She graduated from an elite private school that I believe the Romney children go to called Cranb- Cranbrook Kingswood School in 1972 in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. And then she went on to attend the University of Arizona to study art. She was influenced to study art by her father, Max Frank. He was an art collector and introduced her to the work of such pop artists like Peter Max. While she was in college, as we talked about earlier, she started her jewelry line, Sticky Fingers. Outside of her Lisa Frank brand, she had independent partnerships with Reebok and launched her own colorful clothing line in 2011. And in 2017, Frank partnered with the producer John Shestack, who is best known for Air Force One, develop a movie inspired by her work. But. The only thing I can find about that is an EW blog from 2017 announcing this. So it's safe to assume that in the year 2022, it's indefinitely shelved. In 2019, I'm so glad that you're sitting down because this threw before a loop. Lisa Frank designed the logo for John Mayer's Instagram television series, Current Mood.
0: Ah. (laughs) Remember his like weird little Instagram live talk show? Oh, And he also, at that time, wasn't he doing, like, everything kind of had a vaporwave look to it? Mm -hmm. Like, it it checks out. That checks out. It does check out, but
1: it's still nonetheless weird.
0: Uh, Yeah, I would agree. I would agree.
1: Before she had a semi-messy divorce, she was obviously married. Lisa and her future ex-husband, James A. Green, married in 1990, and he became a part of the company until they divorced in 2005. She has two sons, both named after characters she has designed. No! hunter and forest hunter born no. in 1995 forest born in
0: 1999 puke the number three are tourist you- sorry go what ahead what are you doing no i was just saying what are you doing out there like naming your children after an occupation and then the the setting in which that occupation takes place
1: <laughs> more kooky white lady stuff that's all i know mm-hmm. this reeks of crystal chakras <laughs> Oh, yeah. The number three tourist business executive on famousbirthdays.com is notoriously elusive, like I mentioned. She made, the, or she made Urban Outfitters shroud her identity like she was in Witness Protection or someone on 2020. Uh, but around this time of nostalgic resurgence, she became um, reluctantly less elusive. So this is a disclaimer. This is merely a summation of the excellent Should be Pulitzer Prize award winning piece written by Tracy Egan Morrissey for Jezebel when it was still good called Under the Rainbow Gulag. It came out in 2013. If you want to know more, I encourage you to look it up. It's very easy. You just literally type that title into Google and it'll pop right up. You don't even, you could add Lisa Frank. You can't. It doesn't really matter. I Googled it both ways and both times it came up. I just pulled some kind of like key pieces from this longer form article to sort of i don't know show that like there's always multiple sides to a story right
0: even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quin's is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor-guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
1: There's like, there are two to three sides. And so the the business and the person that she wants to project, like everybody, you know, contains some, uh, some irony, some n- not quite giving us the full picture. So, you know, without further ado, I'm just going to kind of like read some quotes in context. So we know already that she's from a suburb. In Michigan, But did you know, because I didn't, that Bloomfield Hills, which is just north of Detroit, is routinely ranked in the top five wealthiest cities in America with a population of under 10,000. Her father was in the automotive industry, so that's why they live in Detroit. And he ran Detroit Aluminum and Brass, a publicly traded family company founded by her grandfather and his brothers in 1925. DAB manufactured automatic transmission components, clutches, whatever. And to put the early success into perspective, D.A.B. was the only company in the United States to make engine bearings for tanks used in World War Two. So she's from, like old money, like, you yeah. know, definitely, you know, adjacent to railroads, kind of old money. Frank's entrepreneurial instincts, though, kicked in. Yeah, of course, during her time at the University of Arizona, but not by her own accord and with her sticky fingers jewelry line. No, no, no. She would purchase handmade pottery and jewelry from local Native American communities and then sell them at a market, sell them at a markup back home in Michigan. Frank no. did so well at that that she eventually started just directing the artists what what kind of jewelry to make. And this is really kind of how her jewelry line came about.
0: Oh, yikes, yikes, yikes.
1: Ugh. So thanks in part to the time of that uh, that she was kind of like at the height of her popularity for almost 35 years There has only ever been two photos of Lisa Frank floating around and one of them is from a Lisa Frank newsletter where she is pictured next to one of her illustrations and it's from 1982 judging by her hair and just to kind of give you an idea of how Lisa Frank views herself in the world I have a fun quote for you In my own little way, I understood, Michael Jackson, Frank said in a 2012 interview with The Daily, intimating that her own level of fame is in some way comparable to that of the late King of Pop and has thus affected how she interacts with the public. What? Like, what? The caucasity, I think, is what you're looking for, right? It's like, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. You have it just as bad as as everybody, As, as much as you think you have it bad. Yeah, that's totally true. And so, you know, it might not seem like a very satisfactory answer earlier when I said that, you know, around some time they started closing stores and maybe they pivoted to apps. But really, what Under the Rainbow Gulag really gets into is how the company actually fell apart. So it's not really just like some inevitable outcome for like a stationary company to fall by the wayside as in an increasingly paperless world. What really happened, uh, at least alleged by a bunch of former employees, pointed out, that not only did they bungle the bag like leading up to the phase out, they also somehow managed to fuck up capitalizing on 90s nostalgia. A quote from a former employee. They could have caught on with the hipster market, but in order for a company to really turn a corner in those kinds of things, they need compassionate leadership and people who appreciate and can nurture talent. This is from somebody who served as an illustrator for the company for four years, and they didn't really have any of that. Quote, I don't think Lisa Frank and her husband, John Green, have a lot of business acumen, as Karen, another former employee. I don't think they ever did. I think Lisa's parents funded the start of her company and she's an artist, not a business person. That was the first time that I was like,
0: oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she is an artist. You're right. That checks (laughs) out completely. But like all of that checks out so much. Like it's just, you know, someone who ended up with a lot of money who had a knack for artsy type of things and then. Hit, you know struck happened to hit a market at the right it was in the right place in the right time like there's there's no other explanation
1: yeah uh, so apparently they had quite the reputation around Tucson though even of being the quote world's shittiest employer there are many job openings at the company around 2001 but there's such there's such a high volume of easily verifiable chatter that it was the shittiest place to work that People wouldn't even be able to fill these positions because nobody really wanted to even apply there. And they could only really trick, you know, just recent college grads. But, you know, the high turnaround was just absolutely insane. Here is an example. Uh, because the the vibes, as you would say, at least to Frank, were not all rainbows. So here's an example. There was an inter-office bi-monthly publication called Frankly Speaking. It informed employees how they were supposed to behave, particularly regarding how they were expected to interact with their boss CEO, James Green. Oh, excuse me. I call her husband John. His name's James Green. Memos were frequently circulated with new and increasingly restrictive company policies. No visitors, including family members, were allowed. The penalty for any violations ranged from verbal abuse to name-calling to screaming to automatic termination to even more bizarre restrictions. One time, after discovering that someone left the office 10 minutes early, an enraged Green instructed the warehouse manager to put chains and padlocks on all the downstairs doors so that, quote, the staff can't escape, end quote.
0: This is like some Elizabeth Holmes sunny, not even <laughs> No, seriously. I mean, they 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 look sympathetic in comparison to Lisa Frank and her ex-husband here but like but they're like one separation one, of a degree removed par- right i mean yes the draconian laws and the paranoia i mean it is just reeks of the dropout
1: oh and to even make it even worse like the company often <laughs> failed to give this should not be surprising at all The promised severance packages; they would fight unemployment benefits, and former employees had to sue for their final paychecks. They also, as evidenced by a numerous public records of civil judgments entered against L.I.F., Lisa Frank Inc. In addition to the bad publicity stemming from the series of lawsuits from local contractors and builders who claimed they hadn't been paid for four million dollars worth of work on the corporate headquarters. Lisa Frank's image problem stemmed from the company's unusually high turnover rate that we were talking about. And numerous employees were just around, readily available to poison the well. Apparently, her husband began, actually, her and her husband, Lisa Frank and her husband, James Green, actually met working at Lisa Frank Inc. in 1982. He was one of the company's first in-house illustrators and designers. Shortly after they became their relationship became romantic, sometime in late 83, early 84 and Green began to move up the corporate ladder. He became an officer of the business in 1988 and then was named president and CEO in December of 1982. Green and Frank married on October 22nd, 1994, in what was described as a, quote, extravagant affair. Their first child was born the following July when Frank Lisa Frank was 41. At the height of her product's popularity, though, Lisa Frank relinquished day-to-day management duties to her husband in order to focus on raising her children. Shortly after each of her sons were born, Frank, who had once been the sole shareholder in her company, made gifts of her stock to green in what would amount to 49% of the shareholdings of Lisa Frank Inc.
0: Is this like, I mean, you could take the script from the dropout and just like change a few words here, and it could very well be the the script for the Lisa Frank Hulu miniseries that I intend on producing. And you know what? The like same blank, deranged,
1: unblinking look in the eye would apply in both mini-series as well. Correct. <laughs> Her children, Hunter and Forrest, who were named after two characters in Lisa Frank's multichromatic menagerie, a leopard cub and a tiger cub, respectively. Okay, I forgot which one. I, I didn't know Hunter was the leopard, but I definitely knew Forrest was the tiger. Lisa worked from home and rarely participated physically in the office. But in 2005, 16 people who had worked for Lisa Frank in various capacities submitted sworn affidavits in a lawsuit brought against her husband, attesting to his management style. Allegedly prone to fits of rage and profanity-laced outbursts in which he would publicly berate people, including his then-wife, Lisa Frank, Green was described as, quote, abusive, arrogant, and extremely difficult to work with. Several former employees witnessed Green throwing chairs and other objects in the office quote, James and Rhonda Roulette, who was the VP at the time, were pretty big into coke, said Kyle, a former employee. There would be days <laughs> when James would come down to the art department, super sweaty and super paranoid and just like walking really fast back and forth through the design area. And there was nothing to be stressed about. It was just a regular day. I think Lisa Frank was into a little bit of coke or something as well, Kyle continues. The reason he thinks that in the archive room, it it always starts at the archive room, oh, where yeah. all the original artwork ever created for the line is stored. There is rumored to be an infamous letter on the back of one of the pieces. Quote, it's from Lisa Frank's friend, written to Lisa Frank about how much fun she had freebasing with Lisa and whoring around New York, said Kyle.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, this is the stuff that, like, 80s dreams are made of and then later 80s nightmares. <laughs>
1: Years before Lisa Frank filed
0: for divorce, though, she would
1: test the waters by regularly asking staff, Hey, if James and I divorce, would you stay with the company? Which is like just the most what? high key way. Like, girl, like send out a survey or something. Like, like we'll <laughs> go around and be like, hey, what's up? If I like randomly divorce my husband, would
0: you like to still be cool with me? Like, it's very odd. Like, what for our odd quarterly impact. employee pulse check, we've asked you just the following two questions here. Like, I feel oh. like even that's too much HR. She's just literally being like straight up. If I divorce my husband, are you cool? It's like what?
1: <laughs> like, uh, I'm just trying to draw a kitty. <laughs> <laughs> she obviously caught the vibe though that like her partnership was coming to an end and that it was obviously going to be a contentious and litigious mess she began increasing her presence in the office according to legal documents and started to take a more active role sensing that his wife was trying to angle him out green seemingly began a campaign of his own enlisting enlisting Rallette's help according to court docs quote james and Rhonda put pressure on people to pick a side either you pick lisa or you pick james said kyle Quote, James is telling people if the company splits up, he's going to start his own company. He was trying to recruit people to go with him so that that way, if Lisa did get to the company, she wouldn't have anybody to help her, which is just super fucked up and fuck that guy.
0: This is like when the Tory Birch divorce happened. Yes. Like her ex had that company, C Wonder, and like I yeah. have a tray from them, but they like weren't making a profit, but it was just this like fuck you company to her.
1: Probably with her fucking money, too. It's Yes. Like, Jesus Christ. Anyway, sadly, in the years following the breakup, instead of forging ahead with the company's plans to expand with a fantastic world of Lisa Frank theme park, which would have been dope, a clothing line and a TV show, the company always considered itself to be competition for Disney. Lisa Frank spent the latter half of the 2000s mired in litigation, mostly with green and roulette. She severely reduced her staff eventually and entered into an exclusive licensing agreement in 2010 with a Delaware-based company, CSS Industries, which would manufacture and sell her a line of products. Quote, I know they must be hurting because when I heard that they were working with a licensing company, I knew there was no way in hell she'd ever consider it because she always wanted total control. However, the relationship with CSS Industries quickly soured, and Frank had to file a lawsuit against the company in 2012 for failing to earn the $2.8 million in royalties it had promised. Green, on the other hand, did find his found his other business, Salvation LLC, a few months after leaving Lisa Frank Inc. Rhonda Roulette, unshockingly, is a vice president because they were having an affair. The article goes into it a lot deeper than I just did right now. Uh, because apparently James had found Jesus. He had always been Jewish, but then after the divorce, he found Jesus. Then he started Salvation LLC, which sounds very, very genuine to his brand. And so did not end on a downer note, here's this fun little tidbit that I got from Bustle. Um, Samantha Leach did an interview with Forrest Green, and he talks about his role in the company, and he sounds very... It sounds like he's taking very much a page out of his mother's book, so you don't really get anything. But I thought this story was very fun. He says that Casey Musgraves and her sister once spent a few days in Tucson with Frank and Green, touring the warehouse, going out for dinners, and eventually convincing Green to launch an Instagram account for the brand. So the only reason why we have a Lisa Frank Instagram account right now is because of Casey Musgraves and her sister. I <laughs> put that out there. And then there's a second fun story that is just so stupid and is very on brand for this person. Diplo. Slid into Lisa Frank's DMs, apparently, (laughs) because he said a few years ago he had made a pilgrimage to Tucson to try and meet her, but it didn't work out. Quote, I assume he's not lying, obviously. No. We didn't meet him, so I don't know, says Greed. He later encountered Diplo at a party, but he says the DJ was flanked by too many women for Green to get to the bottom of the story. (laughs) And that is Lisa Frank, the business, the woman, the myth. And the cartoon baby tiger cub.
0: <laughs> I mean, what an epic. I just I'm I'm in awe of this research because like this is I what a story. It really it is unfortunate due to legal holdouts and selfish people that this will probably never get made into a series, at least not until, you know, someone passes away. I think uh, it's definitely like a protecting the image thing, though. I, but it, it, it's interesting, though, because like there is this protecting the image, but you know, there's a certain point where it's like there's so much that's gotten out li- now. Like, why not just go for it and like give us the docu series or um, a mini series that we all deserve? Anyway, this this was fascinating. I'm like in awe. I've, I've read several of these. Articles, but it was like so long ago that I'd forgotten all these great details. So thank you for bringing those back up.
1: I highly recommend if you haven't read it in a long time or I've never read it, it's a great long read. It's I and I suggest reading the whole original article, too, because of course, like everything, there are other content mills that have pulled have done exactly what I just did, which is like pull like the most salacious parts and reiterated them now. But it's very well written. Tracy Morrissey is like a wonderful writer. She's a great follow on Instagram. I can't say enough good things about her. And yeah, it's just like a really well-researched, well-written piece.
0: Yeah, I so Back in the you know older Jezebel days, I always loved Tracy's reads and like looked forward to pot psychology with Rich all every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had two friends in college who did their own spinoff, who will be left na- unnamed, called Weed Wisdom. Uh, <laughs> anyway good times i miss old jezebel was really it, there was just like Dota was ugh. i mean it was just like such a great like uh anyway Cara
1: brown's shade court is definitely something i think about at least once a day i yeah i i miss old jezebel when it was good it was there was nothing better it
0: was fantastic i loved it on to a much less controversial subject uh I, we're going to talk about Anne Geddes today, uh, who really just doesn't have anything super controversial about her, um, but you know, still very much a part of our um, school supplies landscape here. So, Anne Elizabeth Geddes is an Australian photographer best known for her photographs of babies and horticulture, floral, nature-inspired, whatever you want to call it, settings. Uh, she was born in Queensland, Australia, in 1956 and grew up on a cattle farm. Her childhood was not that great. Uh, she had a really distant mother and a father who demeaned her and her siblings all the time. Um, so her at-home life was not great, so much so that she quit school at 17 and left home to escape her family. Uh, she would go on to le- later marry her husband, Kel, and move with him to Hong Kong in 1983 for his job as a TV exec. After stin stint in PR... She picked up a camera for the first time at the age of 25 and got a job in a photography studio in Melbourne. Excuse me, Melbourne. Um, (laughs) Thank you for saying it the
1: way it was intended.
0: (laughs) She had taught herself photography by learning to use her husband's 35 millimeter Pentax K1000 camera. She later announced on New Year's Eve 1984 to her husband and friends that she was going to become a well-known baby photographer, which just like, I mean... Get out of girl. I mean, she manifested her dreams. Um, so she and her husband eventually moved to New Zealand in 1988. And by the time the couple returned to Sydney two years later, she had built this smart small portfolio of baby photos, and she started specializing in baby photography after using photographs of her two daughters for a family Christmas card, which proved really popular. And eventually a magazine editor used one of her baby portraits in a magazine spread, and she became very popular as this, you know. Go to for baby portraits and published her first calendar and greeting cards in New Zealand in 1992. Uh, one thing to rub with Ann Getty's is that she basically built those elaborate sets by herself, or you know, Whoa. with some help. But she she did a lot of this. This is like a pre Photoshop world. So like yeah. in the early 90s. No one could say they were confident in Photoshop like I do regularly <laughs> <laughs> because Photoshop really didn't exist. You had really basic- And intermediate in Canva. Excuse me. Give yourself credit. Thank you. Thank you. You're right. The resume just keeps growing. I may be on to three <laughs> pages now, baby. Women uh, in STEM. Woo. Woo. She also had to be very patient. So basically, she's not working with Photoshop. So she has to get everything. She has to build these elaborate sets. And then on top of that, she has to be super patient with these babies because they're fucking babies uh, to get that right shot of them sleeping or happy, whatever she needed in that instance. And it was even more difficult when the photo featured more than one baby because often you'd have like twins or triplets, you know, it was like a multiple baby thing. And sometimes they'd have an assistant like running around with the balloon string and pulling away quickly. So the babies would just like quickly look at one another and they'd capture this like, right shot. I mean, they were like doing whatever they could to get these shots. I, I'm i still amazed that like she was pulling off this stuff in a pre-Instagram world. Um, in terms of subjects, she does not like to audition babies to use as models because she believes... All babies are beautiful, which like, okay, I sort of agree with this, but sometimes there are like when newborns come out, they're not that cute sometimes. They can be like they look like aliens. Um
1: I mean, but, you know, to quote my mom, that's not true. Not all babies are cute. <laughs> it's and it. I'm not even talking about newborns, like not all no. babies are created equal. Let's not put that
0: on babies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not their fault, but like no, we, gotta, they're we babies. have to be honest. We would be honest about it. Anyway, so to find Twins or triplets for her photo shoots, she will be in touch with um, multiple birth and twin clubs. So I think like there are groups on Facebook or something like that. And she has thousands of photographs on file that parents have sent her of her babies so that she'll use them in future photo shoots. A typical setting for the baby portraits will take place in the morning when they're well rested. They last about a half hour tops because, you know, they're babies, they get bored, they get fussy. So she'll set up everything in advance from a lighting um, angle perspective to make sure that like they really don't have to do too much when the baby comes in. Um, And then they keep the baby's parents nearby for extra assistance with expressions. So it all sounds like, you know, a nice enough set, like nothing crazy. So, uh, you know, again, not very much drama here, but in terms of like the sales numbers that she's, you know, been doing over the years. Oh, I'm so so curious. I mean, just even like the cultural
1: impact To this day, like, I don't know if you listen to the Deep Dive podcast with June Diane and Jessica St. Clair, but they're dressed. Well, they have their faces photoshopped on Ann Getty's babies and then a photo shoot with Kylie and Kendall for, I think, some other product that they're making to make money off of where they're dressed like Ann Getty's babies, too. So to this day, this woman's impact is still here. So I'm very curious what the
0: numbers were at the the peak because there was a point where you could not escape it. I mean, so so. 1997, Sedco Publishing sold more than 1.8 million calendars and agendas featuring her photography. Jesus. And her 1996 debut book, Down in the Garden, this is like probably, it was a coffee table book. This was like really famous one. She was interviewed on Oprah for this. Like when you oh. were on Oprah, it was like a big deal. She made it to the New York Times bestseller list. Um, she oh. over the years has had seven award-winning globally published coffee table books, uh 31 years of calendars and then uh greeting cards and lists of tons of other publications her publications have been published in over 84 countries translated into 24 languages and according to amazon.com and this is from the wikipedia page she has sold more than 18 million books and 13 million calendars which seems holy fuck i insane but also seems kind of low like i think these numbers might be a bit old but still like in her heyday i mean she was making great money
1: Um, Yeah. But then unfortunately you started seeing them at like a TJ Maxx or a Marshalls and that's
0: when you know your
1: star is waning.
0: Exactly, Getty's currently resides in New York with her husband Cal, and nowadays she's had to pivot her business since, in our new world, we have computers, Instagram, Photoshop apps, etc. So we can all be our own and Gettys if we decide to have kids. <laughs> uh, according, according to New York Times interview from last year, she's focused more on studio work, commissions for companies and private clients, and campaigns for charities like the March of Dimes or awareness of. I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. Menin go cockle disease. And I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. She, I, I shouldn't even laugh afterwards, but just you being like, I'm so sorry. Already halfway through trying to say it was. Funny. I mean, I tried. I tried. Like, and one of her recent commissions from a few years ago I saw was like the model Chanel Iman. She had commissioned some baby, some photos with her and her baby by Ann Getty. So she has some pretty big people you know, coming to her to do baby photo shoots. And then she also recently did a commission for the Qatar Museums Authority, which, like, I don't know how they, you know, with Qatar, everything seems kind of shady. So uh, during the she pandemic... She did some
1: photos with Misty Copeland to, to lighten the photo- mood.
0: That makes it... Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, so she's, she's done well for herself, but she's, you know, she's... Nowadays, it's not so much the mass-produced stuff as it is, like, the commission... Um, work. And then during the pandemic, she began calling for submissions from parents and their babies' photos and featured ones from all over the world in, the, in a project on Instagram that she titled Joy. Oh, and Jesus. she organized this project to bring more joy into the world. And the idea came from one of her daughters. Uh, she even, according to her website, now has, <laughs> because we we're talking about apps here, an Ann Getty's app where you can add photos of your babies and and she and her team will provide input on how to make them better. And there's a, of course, a subscription fee tied to this. But, you know, woman's got to hustle. So that right. is- I mean,
1: she is a professional photographer, so you got to pay her something.
0: Exactly. So she's still, you know, active on Instagram. She seems very sweet. She's always wearing a backwards baseball cap, which is interesting to me. Um, <laughs> I love but, it. <laughs> but with, I love it. She's got like her gray ponytail, a blondish gray ponytail, and then like a backwards baseball cap. It's denim. I'm like, Iconic. I love it, you know. Um, that's really all I have on Ann Getty's, but I have a few honorable mentions from the school supplies world that I wanted to bring up. Let's do it. Okay. So first and foremost, we've got to talk about Sanrio, which I'm starting to think Margo deserves its own episode. Well, yeah,
1: we'll have to bring like if we don't have Cass on in some capacity because she is the other Sanrio expert. We stayed in that Sanrio store f- for years, you know, like oh I God. we definitely need another we need an episode on it. And I I went to the Sanrio like the Hello Kitty con in 2014 to cover it for an outlet. So I have a lot of fun tidbits about that too, because they also had like an exhibit tied to that. So I would love a Hello Kitty Sanrio episode.
0: I would love to do one as well. My sister and I were obsessed. I watched a Netflix had a toys docuseries and like they mm-hmm. had an episode on Hello Kitty that was really interesting. But you know, big school supplies them for us and stationary them. I also wanted to bring up the Coca-Cola polar bears. Do you remember a time in which for some reason, because of like all the Coca-Cola marketing with polar bears, I had folders with the polar bears. I don't know like why Coca-Cola licensed this, but they, they somehow made money outside of the soft drink industry hmm. and were selling folders with the polar bears. And I, I had a few of those at one point.
1: I remember they had the Coca-Cola polar bears. We had um like mail return stickers that had them on them. That yes. was pretty much the extent that
0: I remember. Um, the other one that I was thinking of, and I don't remember the name, but there was for a while. And I think there were a couple of them out there on the market. Outside of the Lisa Frank Dolphins, there were more like realistic dolphin seascapes. Oh, yeah. That was a big, like, I think the one of the artists may have been named like Christian Reese Lassen or something, but there were a couple of, you know, people out there doing the very like elaborate seascape on school supplies.
1: Yeah, and I'm also... It reminds me of not only the dentist's office, but uh, those eye illusion ones. Those were also oh, big, remember? Magic right? Eye. Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm, those were big mm-hmm. too because you could also get those as like a trapper keeper at the very least a folder. So yeah, yes. that was a great way to you know not pay attention in class.
0: I, I feel like Magic Eye walked so Vaporwave for the Gen Zers could run. Like it's just... Everywhere, whenever I see like anything that like this vapor wave ish, or sorry, it's it vapor wave. Yes, vapor wave. I always want to call it vaporware, but with vapor wave, I just it always has like a magic eye esque background, and I'm just like, oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I wonder if that's even a thing anymore. I have no idea. Yeah. Well, anyway, I do. You have any fi- final thoughts about um, what we talked about today and our school supplies? No, I think I've talked more than enough. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our latest episode. And if you like what you've heard, you can join our old millennial cinematic universe on Patreon for just $5 a month. Uh, You get two bonus episodes from us if you are a Patreon subscriber. So definitely check us out. We've got some previews available on our podcast reel. So definitely check it out. We understand though that inflation is a real thing. And if you can't support us financially right now, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and/or Spotify. Thank you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at the Old Millennials Pod. And then individually you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Emily A. Beijin. And I'm at Mark She Wrote. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye.